I am very thankful for your being here today. Uh, I think today's message is very important, really because I think it goes through one of the greatest passages of the defense for the believer's assurance. I read something a while ago, or maybe I heard it, but I think it's important to reiterate it. So join me in Romans chapter 8, if you would. We'll be in the last part of Romans chapter 8 this morning. But it goes something like this as you're turning there. The eternal security of the believer is guaranteed by God, but the believer's assurance is something that he must attain himself. Now, you may look at that and say, wait a second, that doesn't make much sense, but I want you to focus on the two words there, security and assurance. There's many times when we find ourselves in need of our insurance, right? Maybe you get into an accident, something happens at your home, and you have no doubt that you have insurance, but do you have assurance that your insurance will help you, amen? There's always something that is there to kind of disqualify you from that insurance that you pay into every single month or year. Well, with the salvation of the believer, the security is held by God, amen? We're found in him. How the believer can lack assurance is that they don't know the truth of their security. Probably the number one thing that I deal with on a weekly basis is people struggling with assurance. And I've come to the conclusion that assurance is not a guarantee for every believer, and that is because many believers are not rooted in the Word. They're found in Christ, but they're spiritually immature. They just lack growth and knowledge. And so as we're coming to the end of the year and in the next several weeks, we're going to look at some prophecy about Jesus and the Messiah and his birth and, you know, theme on Christmas there. Really, the first thing that I wanted to address was something topical about the believer's position in Christ. There's a beautiful phrase that we see, and it's right here in verse number 37. Would you look at it with me for a moment? Romans chapter 8, verse 37 says, Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. This is actually a seven-part statement. This is the seventh part of a list of things that Paul goes through that guarantee the assurance of the believer. Really, what I want to do today is make sure that you understand what is available to you with your salvation. I remember when we were shopping phone plans earlier this year, we were with AT&T for so long, and we were doing the family plan thing, but as things began to progress, you know, that rate begins to get higher and higher and higher, and so we had just switched our internet provider at home, and it came with a plan for phones as well, and so we decided we're going to go ahead and make the switch. Well, we made the switch, and then all these other things that I was not aware of became available to us. We got better speed at home. One of the lines that we have now is free. All these different things that I may have known at one point, but I was reminded through the constant use of that service. I see salvation as very similar. There are a lot of things that are given to you the moment that you believe, but you're not aware of all of them. And I think it's good to be reminded of these things as we seek to serve the Lord with our lives, because the best type of way that we can serve is out of love, not fear perfect love, it casts out fear. That's what 1 John chapter 4 tells us. But I see a lot of believers that are serving as if they are using their service as a means to justify themselves before God. 
But these seven assurances that we're going to look at today, I hope give you rest and confidence. And if you already have that, then I want you to be paying attention regardless because you need to know these things for people in your family, for people in your circle of influence that are either they've just come to Christ, meaning they've just put their trust in Jesus Christ, or they're not growing and they forgot what they already have. Isn't it good that we don't have to depend on remembering God? He remembers us. I just did a video on this uh, with our Bible Line channel. We're reacting to this guy. I don't even want to say his last name because I just mess it up all the time. Saldivar, I think, is his name. Is that right? Nailed it. Make sure we get that sound clip and you can just edit that in there when I mess his name up. But this, you know, this guy used Matthew chapter 7 and he said, uh, when Jesus says, I never knew you, this guy, as he's commenting, says, see, you need to know God. But that's not what that verse says. That verse says that Jesus does not know you. Okay, so that, is that a difference? It's a huge difference. It's the matter between truth and error. That's what we need to understand. We're known by God because we have put our faith in his son. You don't have to worry about God forgetting things. He does, that's not in his nature. It's not a part of his character. You're going to see that in a moment as we go through here. But there is a risk that you forget where you are. How many times has this happened? This happened to me this week on Thursday. I'm going through making appointments as if it were Wednesday. I mean, I'm like putting things in my calendar, right? I'm seeing when I open up the calendar, the little red circle on Thursday, and I'm going, can't wait for midweek service tonight. I mean... If I would have continued, all the things that I had planned for Thursday would have been off track. And it's not that Thursday forgot about me. I forgot about the proper day. But it could have real-world consequences. You can have things planned that we're not ready for. Just like you don't want to do that in your real life, you don't want to waste your Christian life forgetting what God has already told you. We just did a little bit of an important message on Wednesday night about the armor of God and one of the only things that is listed as a weapon for the Christian is the word. It's the only weapon. Everything else is a defense. Everything else is for what the devil does to us. That sword, and by the way, it's not some real long sword. That was usually for captains and generals and people who had those in front of them as protection before they had to get that long sword because it wasn't lightweight. That was big hacks, you know. All the soldiers, including those generals and captains with the long sword, they were all skilled with a short sword very sharp. They made sure that in one-on-one -on -one combat, they were ready to take the other enemies, uh, excuse me, to take the enemy's life. And that's what we do with the word. Except we're not out here trying to kill people with it, but we defeat the deceitful doctrines of the devil with that word. And I think a lot of times people end up in a battle for their spiritual blessing, and they have nothing to defend themselves with. All they can do is basically clam up like a little turtle and just hope that all of that stuff goes away. But the Christian who knows the word, boy, they're, they're out there answering it with truth. Most of the time in the comment section on YouTube, people get mad at us because we use Scripture. There have been people that say, that, well, logically, this and this and this. And then Trent will give a response like, well, chapter and verse. And they go, well, that's not it. That, you know... There's other things. There's this writing. There's this commentary. But the word, what's going to happen to those writings and commentaries? It's going to pass away, folks. There's not going to be a book in heaven next to the Bible. Amen? That's going to last forever. 
So we should know what that says and build our doctrine off of that. But the reason why I want to go through this passage verse by verse is because this is going to be a sword when the doubt comes. It will come. The doubt of your salvation will come, especially in your infancy. You will hear things. You will feel things that will be contradictory to the truth. You need to know what the truth is. You need to know that. It needs to be something that you not only know, but you live it out. It's going to be a reflection of God's grace and his glory in you. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 here, is what I think we're going to see seven assurances for the believer. Now, as Paul, the guy up there running our scripture for the live stream, he knows there's a lot of verses here today. So I really want you to make sure even though we may go quickly, I want to make sure that you're writing these things down. And just so you know, anytime you want a copy of the notes, you say, Pastor, I'd really like a copy of those notes. They're free of charge. You just let me know. I save them in a format where you can open them on anything. You say, well, I use uh, PC. I use Apple. doesn't matter. It's a universal language. That's how I put it in there. And I want to get these to you because these are things that I think would be good for like the front cover of your Bible or maybe the back cover or something where you can... As you're going through life and you're going through struggles and doubts and uncertainty, because your flesh is totally against any kind of spiritual growth, I want you to have little things you can hook on the Word. You ever seen someone free climb before? I don't know why YouTube thought that'd be a good thing for me to check out this week. I don't know. But I saw video after video of these people free climbing, and I'm thinking, nope. (laughs) No. See how tall I am? God wanted that. Anything higher, I'm going against his will, right? <laughs> no, but I'm watching these. I'm, I'm watching like they'll set the camera on the ground. And there's this huge peak. I mean, I'm not saying it's like tens of feet, but it's high enough to where if they were to fall, it's serious injury, probably death. And they set like a time lapse on the bottom and you start seeing them just, they, all they have is a little harness that they attach to different points that they make on the uh, surface there and, and they'll go all the way up. They'll climb like this, and then they'll go underneath like a jutted out rock and then back up here and do all that, and I'm going, where do you know to put your hand? Where do you know to put your foot and know that it's solid? That would be my biggest concern. Now, I have a legitimate fear for this, okay? Because when I did summer, when I was, I did summer camp every year. We'd go somewhere for summer camp. That's, that's what my parents loved to do. It's like, hey, go, go there. We'll see you later tonight. <laughs> I remember for the summer camp that I went to the most frequently was right off of Gun Highway over here at the Jewish Community Center. And no, that's not because I'm Jewish. I think just they had a good summer camp. It was great. As a matter of fact, I'll never forget when I started talking to my friends that I was a Christian and they're Jewish. That was an interesting conversation. I learned a lot about what the Jewish people believe about Jesus. <laughs> it was a very interesting uh, discovery that I had. I'm like, wait, you don't believe in Jesus? No, that's an offense to us. I was like, oh, okay, got to find my way around this. But there's a huge rock wall at that summer camp. And I remember being so confident, got on that harness, got on that thing, and I started to climb, and I put my dominant hand on a loose rock. Now, you know, you know those rock walls, they got the screws in there, and they're supposed to be screwed in. Amen? They're supposed to be secure. Well, I remember I grabbed it, and it kind of gave way, and I was like, that's interesting. I got a little more grip. Now I can grab behind it. So I grabbed all of my weight and pulled it on there, and I slipped and fell, and as I came down, I hit the side of my face 
on the rock wall, and I was just like traumatized. I was like, I'm done with this. That's where I just came up with that doctrine. I'm this tall, and that's what God wants. You know, I'm not going to go any higher than that. But I remember looking and seeing something that I thought was secure, and then it, it falling through. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today, you may have little phrases and thoughts in your mind that sound good and look good, but they're not based on biblical truth. And when hard times come and you put your weight on that, it breaks through. And the devil's going to get you to think, see, that? that's because you're not doing enough. The problem is with you. You're not enduring enough. You're not serving enough. You don't love God enough. That's why you're not getting these things. That's not true. And the biggest doubt that people suffer with is, am I going to heaven? I got three emails this week. I, I, I thought about printing them out and reading them to you, but I didn't because they're repetitive. Things like this. I, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. He shed his blood on the cross for my sins, but I don't know if I believed enough. That is a vice. I just see somebody in a, in a, in a straitjacket of, of, of theology, and I think, man, how much freedom this person would have if they just relied on what the Scripture says. But as I email back and forth, guess what? Oh, they're listening to desiring God. They're listening to grace to you. They're reading, literally, they're reading a study Bible with Calvinist notes in it. No wonder they're doubting their faith. No wonder they're sitting there going, I don't really know. Well, because the well that you're drinking from is poisoned. It doesn't have the truth. You need the truth. And you let the word speak for itself. And you have to make a decision. Am I going to believe that or am I going to call God a liar? And you say, whoa, call God a liar. It's not that extreme. If you don't believe what he says, you're calling him a liar. First John is one of the places where that phrase, liar, is used the most. Because it's people saying one thing and doing another. That's, that's being a hypocrite, which is the very form of lying. Look at the first thing I want you to see here. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? Here's the first thing. If God be for us, who can be against us? The first thing is not mentioned here, and it's not mentioned in this specific spot because we're coming into the last part of this address before Paul kind of shifts gears to the, to the Jewish people through 9, 10, and 11. But we know from other places in the book of Romans that because we are uh, believed on the Son, this applies to those, as it says here, what shall we say to these things if God be for us? Okay, that's a, that's a group. Okay, there's discrimination there. There's us from them. There's, there's a difference of groups there. The us, and this is the first point, are those who have believed on the Son. So just hold your spot here in Romans and go to John chapter 6. The first assurance for the believer is that we have believed on the Son. John chapter 6, verses 39 through 40, and then verse 47 says this. Some page 1123 in a Schofield Bible. Jesus is speaking here. This is the great discourse on the bread of life. And in the middle of this, we zoom into this statement where he says, And this is the Father's, that's God's, will which hath sent me, that of all which he, the Father, hath given me, the Son, I should, one, lose nothing, two, but should raise it up again at the last day. This is a guarantee. Now, I want you to imagine there's brackets here for a moment, okay? Look up here for just a second. You've got two brackets, and you have something in the middle of the bracket. The first bracket is what he says there, which is, 
all the Father has given me. We know from earlier in the passage, that is those who have believed. You've been given. Okay, that's the first part, okay? You're going to be never lost. Look at what it says. That I should lose nothing. Okay, so there's your security. You can build assurance off of that security. But then there's, there's a space between that that's not here in the Scripture, but that's going to be the Christian life. Now, the last bracket is telling you how it's going to end. This is how it started. You're given to the Father when you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is not going to lose you. What's the last part of that bracket? Look at what it says. But should raise it again at the last day. So here's, here's the whole thing. This is sealed, folks. You can bring this together, and everything that happens in between this does not change the beginning or the end of it. Amen? You're, you are secured. Never going to be lost. You will be raised up again at the last day. doesn't say if you keep all these different rules, if you demonstrate. No, no. You're kept. This is something God does. Amen? This is the part of the group project where he takes it all. <laughs> and all we have to do really is show up, and we're a part of it. Now look at verse 40. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. So that's the definition, look up here, of these two brackets. <coughs> this is everlasting life. Now we're going to die one day. Oh, that's comforting. But we all know that. Things are getting worse for our bodies, for our health, for our conditions. But, do you know, you're already living your eternal life right now? Really? Yeah. You have a new nature in you that was quickened, born again, the moment that you believed. That nature, which you possess right now, will never die. What will die? The flesh in this house. This shack, right? This is temporary. The eternity starts with faith in Christ. So you're living your everlasting life right now. There's no question of trying to verify if it's true because you've done the only thing that's required according to Jesus Christ himself said these things. You believe, you get it. Now look at the end of verse 40. And I will raise him up at the last day. This is a I will statement. It's not I may, I might, I should. He will. Now look at 47. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath. That is present tense. You are in position right now of everlasting life. Now, that should be enough to nullify the next six points of my sermon. That, I want you to see that. We don't really have to go any further than that. That's enough. Thanks for coming. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday night. But No, but in true pastoral form, I want to make sure... <laughs> Pastor Caleb laughed because he knows. He's like, yeah, give me six more. <laughs> but in true form of I want to edify you and build you up, I want you to see there's more than just that. Although I want to be very clear, that's all we need. That's it. That is it. And I want you to have comfort in that and peace in that. Because you're going to go through life and things will change. They will change. You're going to fall. You're going to mess up. You're going to do less than you should. You're going to get distracted. You're going to get bitter. 
Why? Because you have an evil, sinful nature against any kind of spiritual progress, and the devil will use that to bring doubt in your mind up here. Well, is that really the truth? Well, if you were really converted, you wouldn't do these things. And we know from the Bible there are examples of that not being the case. I think one of the greatest examples outside of Lot is Peter. Think of Peter for a moment. Denied the Lord, was brought back into proper fellowship, was used in a great and mighty way. But Paul chides him rather sharply in Galatians chapter 2. Here is a converted man. He's saved. Not only that, he's a part of the elect in that he was an apostle. And he still had problems. What was Peter's problem? He showed preference to the Jewish customs over the Gentile way. And Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says that hurts the gospel. Are we to conclude now that Peter never really believed? Are we to conclude that he was not really saved at that point? No. How about another great example? You'd say, oh, Lot, certainly. No, no, Paul. Paul himself. In Romans chapter 7, he talks about the things that I want to do, I don't do those things, and the things that I should not do, I do those things. I see this law within me. There is, there is warring between my members. So many commentators say, well, that was pre-converted, Paul. He wrote about that before he was saved. Every single verb in that passage is a present tense. How's that for English? Nailed it. Miss Miranda, my English teacher, would be very happy. But it doesn't say, this is how I was before and now I have no sin. Paul had problems, major issues, between what he wanted to do and what he should have done, and God still used him. What's the thing we hang on? Jesus said, I will not be forgotten if I believe on him. You're not going to miss the bus. He's not going to say, I'm sorry, I forgot to put you down on the list. You are known by him, and that's what makes Matthew 7 so important. I never knew you cannot apply to those who have believed. You're known. Number two. Because he has sealed up us with the Spirit. Look in Ephesians chapter 1. Verses 13 through 14. Now, when you get there, just listen along here. You may say, well, pastor, you were going to show us from the Scripture where these things are in Romans. It is in Romans, but it's so far back. As I was preparing, I thought, I only have X amount of minutes to go through this. But really, all of Romans 8 details how the sealing of the Holy Spirit helps the believer. We know that he hears our, uh, likewise, the Spirit understands our infirmities. He communicates for us when we don't know what to say. But the Spirit bears witness, and we're going to look at that in a moment. But because we're sealed with the Spirit, we have assurance. We're more than just saved by grace. More than just people who have won the victory, we're children of God now. Look at what it says in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the good news of your salvation. In whom also, after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14 which is, so this is now descriptive of the Holy Spirit's, the, the significance of that sealing, it's descriptive now, which is what? That seal, which came 
by faith in Jesus Christ in the gospel message is the earnest of our inheritance. So the moment that we trusted, we were now brought into the last will and testament, so to speak. And Hebrews goes through this in great detail. We are now brought into that last will and testament, which is only executed when the testator dies. Did Jesus Christ die? Absolutely. And he rose again. And so the inheritance for him is the firstborn from the dead. We're included in that. Now, he was physically the first one to come back on his own power. You may say, well, Lazarus and the, and the miracle that Elijah performed. No, no, God made that happen. Jesus came back, and now we are a part of that resurrection, although we have yet to experience it. That's the guarantee in John 6, 39 and 40, the last day. We're going to be, boom, there. Now, I believe pretty firmly that in my lifetime, the rapture will happen. I know a lot of men that have gone before me that would say the same thing. But I have hope that one day, either at my, my death or at the rapture, I'm going to get a glorified body. What do I base that off of? Jesus got his. And this says the Spirit is within me as a signal, as a beacon of light. This one's a part of it. Get this one. He's a part of it which is the inheritance, excuse me, the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, either at the rapture or at uh, the day of death, unto the praise of his glory. For what purpose am I sealed with the Spirit? All glory to God. All glory to God. I couldn't have done it any other way. We talk about that witness, right? I was saying that that's earlier in Romans chapter 8. I want you to see it in 1 John 5. Look in 1 John Verse 5, or uh, chapter 5 in verse 6. Didn't the choir do great today? Man, and such a great song too for what we're going to be talking about. First John chapter 5, look in verse 6. Now my focus is not on the express content in these verses, but I want you to see the role of the Spirit. The Spirit is capitalized here, not because the translators got bored and decided, let's capitalize this because we haven't for a while. This is a reference, specifically, this is referring to the, the third part of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit that beareth witness. For the sake of what we're studying, that's what I want to focus on here. The Spirit bears witness. This is the Spirit standing in defense of us. He's a called witness. He bears witness to the truth. Look at the rest of that. Because the Spirit is truth. He's not in possession of it as if he was given the truth to, as something to guard. He is truth. The Holy Spirit is God. Look at what it says in verse 12 now. Excuse me, verse 10. So here it is. He that believeth on the Son of God. Now, that's the qualifier, and that's the only qualifier. May I have your eyes for a moment? If you read 1 John, there's a lot of this. Keep his commandments, keep his commandments, keep his commandments. You can't say you love God and hate your brother. Keep his commandments. That makes you a liar. You can't say you're walking in the light, but you walk in darkness. That makes you a liar. Keep his commandments. The focus of that instruction, keep his commandments, is for the abiding, 
faithful, fruitful relationship with the Lord where we grow thereby. This is becoming a big, strong Christian, not just a weak, little baby Christian. This, however, in 1 John 5, 10 through 13, is all about the reality of the conversion that has happened and that the Holy Spirit bears witness to that conversion. Look at what this says now. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. Now, from the analysis of Scripture, what is the witness? Is it the Christian life manifested through the behavior of the believer? Or is it the indwelling Holy Spirit? It's the indwelling Holy Spirit. And I could stop here. Notice the first two points are all about the Godhead. Jesus Christ, the Son. The Holy Spirit guarantees it. But look at what it says. We continue on. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness, the Spirit, in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. Why? Because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. What the devil squeezes in here and says, because he does not stop cussing. He does not stop his drinking. He does not go to church enough. He knows he's not doing enough with his Christian life. That's not up for debate. We're talking about the reality of the conversion. That's faith in Jesus Christ. Signed, sealed, delivered. Done. The bracket is closed. Everlasting life is given. Amen? And the Spirit witnesses that. And this is the record. Another legal term. Witness. Record. That God hath already this has in a present tense given to us eternal life and this life is in his son us a discriminatory statement there us being those who have what believed on the son of god who is who jesus christ verse 12 he that hath the son how do you have the son by faith you've got something else you've got life and he that hath not the son of god Hath not life. That's the whole goal of life, folks. To get eternal life. That's it. When you break down all the different things in your life that are goals, and you recognize you have the only one that really matters, which is faith in Christ, it would motivate you to reach those who don't yet have that. Loved ones, kids, family members that are without Christ, that should be the top priority. I want life for you. Long time ago, there was like this thing. It was really popular where you could buy property on the moon and gift it to somebody. <laughs> and it was like this big thing. It was like, oh, you know, you get a gift and it's just like a manila folder with a piece of paper. It's like, oh, you got, I got property on the moon. It's so American, right? It's just like, we're going to sell this and we're going to sell it hard and fast. I wonder if that would be a part of your taxes, right? Well, we got to tax our property on the moon. Property's going up. <laughs> and people would get it, and they would be like, oh, wow, this is, this is so cool, and they'd be in possession of it. And it's silly, you know? It's silly. It's a cute little gift. I don't know, I don't know how much you would spend on a cute little gift like that, but it's not really real. We're not going to get to the point where it's like, all right, everybody, in your little rocket ship, Elon's taking off. We're going to drop you off and you're going to scout it and put your property there. And it's not really going to happen. But they have a certificate which makes it seem like it's real. But is there any power behind that certificate? 
No, there's no governing body on the moon, and I don't think we're going to ever colonize the moon, because why not? This is pretty good here. But this is different when it comes to your eternal life. The witness is the spirit which indwells in you, which is not there based on any condition of what you are, except that you've believed. That's it. Then you have 1 John 5.13, which you know it, but we're going to read it. These things have I written unto you. Now, many people say it's the entirety of the book. No, no, it's really what he started in verse 1. These things have I written unto you that believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know. This is, this is a possession of knowledge in the affirmative that you have eternal life and that you may believe in the name of the Son of God. And you've got confidence as a result of that. That's number two. Number three is because we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Go back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them also he called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Now, all of this is talking about what God has done in response to the believer's choice. Don't believe the lasso of Calvinism that makes you believe that foreknow here means that God made you believe. There's a fatal flaw in Calvinism, and it is the overanalysis of God's sovereignty. And some would be shocked that I would even say that. But in the Calvinistic view of God, God is so lacking control of his sovereignty if the believer, if man has free will. Does man have free will? You have to say yes. Because if you say he does not, then you are not saying that God merely allows sin to happen. You're saying he caused it. If man doesn't have a free will, and God is the great puppeteer of this universe, then for all the praise, honor, and glory in the world towards him, he also makes sure that the evilness and wickedness happens. He makes it happen. I don't subscribe to that view of God. So the condition here is, look at verse 29. Whom he, God, did foreknow. The ones that he foreknew, and there'd be a lot of, there'd be a lot of commentators that would go against this. I don't care. Because it goes with what the Scripture teaches. Are those who believed. God knew those who would trust in him of their own will, their own volition, and those who would reject. He already knows that. And so, as a response to that, he said, those who I did foreknow, look what he says, I predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now look up here for a moment. This is all three tenses of salvation. God guarantees your justification when you believe on him. He guarantees as you submit and walk in your new nature, he guarantees your progressive sanctification for those who obey. For those who disobey, he guarantees chastening and loss of reward. But not only that, he guarantees the very end glorification, which we know in 1 John 3, 2, is we're going to see him and be like him. That's all taken care of because God foreknew you would believe. Isn't that wonderful? 
you got the whole thing taken care of. That doesn't, that does not, that statement of the foreknowledge and predestination does not nullify the doubt that comes into your mind. The doubt that comes into your mind is real. It's real doubt, but it's not based on truth. You've got to know verses like this to know what God has said about you. Who's going to have the last word? Your doubt or God? God. Continue on in verse 30. Moreover, in addition, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Called into service. And them he called, he also justified. The one-time point of justification, which starts which is started and completed when you believe. Them who he justified, he also glorified. All of this is past tense because in the scope of God's view, this is all done. This is all taken care of. There are many people who suffer with that, I believe, but I don't believe enough. When they get to things like this, they have to face the truth. God says it's already done. So because of that, we have hope. This is not the only place where this is set on this third point because he has predestined us. Look in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ. You know those little, uh, I can't remember the name of it. It's not a Kinder Egg. But it was something else. They were like these like balls of chocolate. I think it was a Wonder Ball. Right? And it's like this ball of chocolate and it's got like another layer in there, another layer, and then there's a real hard choy that kids could choke on and that's exactly what happened. So we don't have those anymore. But think of it like that. You've got this Wonder Ball of salvation. <laughs> you are that little toy on the inside. There's two layers before it gets to you. You're kept by the Son, you're kept by God the Father, and there you are, that little little toy. No one eats the little toy, everybody likes the chocolate. You're so secure, you're taken care of. In heavenly places, in Christ, according as he hath chosen us. Uh Uh-oh, the pastor's argument just went out the door. He's got to be Calvinist now. No, no, he's chosen us what? In him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. This is exactly in agreement with Romans chapter 8. He did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he be the firstborn of many brethren. That's what Romans 8, 29 is saying. Ephesians 1, 4 is in agreement with that. But the condition is being found in him. How is a person found in Christ? John 10, 28. I give them eternal life. They shall never perish. They are held in my hand and held by the Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Done. Doesn't matter how much your level of belief does not make that qualify. You simply put your trust in Jesus, and that's true of you. The fourth point. Go back to Romans, please. Romans chapter 8 and verse 32. Because he gave us Uh, Excuse me, because he gave Jesus the offering of sin. Oh, I went to 1 Corinthians. That was my other one. Hang on a sec. Romans chapter 8, starting verse 31. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He's for us. Those first two points that we talked about. We believed on the Son. We're sealed with the Spirit. 
He's predestined. We saw that in verses 29 through 30. Who shall be against us? Verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So if there's any doubt as to something changing, what God has already said would happen, we look at the fact that Jesus was given. That in and of itself is the greatest sacrifice that could ever be displayed. We think of that and we believe that with those men and women who have gone in defense of the freedom of this country, we remember, and we say it all the time, they paid the what? Ultimate price, which was their what? Their life. God gave his son's life. There's nothing that could change that or outweigh that. Even your doubt, even your anxiety, even your, the attacks that you succumb to from the devil, they do not change the truth. But if you don't know that, you won't believe it. And you'll struggle. Look at chapter 5 of Romans. This was already said before. This is a beautiful statement we're going to read here. Romans chapter 5 in verse 6. We're on the fourth point because he gave Jesus as the offering for sin. Verse 6, Romans chapter 5, page 1197. For when, ye, excuse me, for when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. What strength is this in reference to? Without any strength to save ourselves from the impending judgment from God. No ability. For when we were without strength, in due time, in the time that God had predetermined, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet preadventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. Meaning, we're not going to give our lives for an unrighteous person. We would rarely give our lives for someone who is good in the standards of the world. But God, who is perfect, died for those who would not even believe on him. But God commendeth, that's an old archaic word, but we can understand it better in today's understanding, demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, so on top of that ultimate sacrifice that was given, much more than that being now justified by his blood. It's already done. We shall be saved from wrath through him. What's the wrath? Well, there's many points of wrath. I believe one of those is the tribulation period. The church will be spared from that. Then there's also the wrath at the second coming when he comes down and it's all over, folks. Curtains. And then ultimately, the judgment at the great white throne judgment. We're saved from all of that. By what? Faith in His Son. And you look at verse 10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. If God loved us while we were an enemy and gave, him, gave His Son for the enemies... Do you think he's going to forget you now? But your doubt says, yes, he would. Folks, you've got to latch onto the truth. You've got to know what it is and use it. Go back to Romans chapter 8. A recap before we get into these last three points. 
Seven assurances of the believer. We're more than conquerors because we believed on the Son, because He has sealed us with the Spirit, because He hath predestined us, because He gave Jesus as the offering for sin, and number five here, because He has justified us. Look at verse 33. Paul has already asked the question, what are we going to say to these things? If God be for us, who be against us? He gave the argument that Jesus was offered, so God is not going to turn on His Son. And you're in the Son. Verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Let me tell you something. There's no man, woman, institution, government, nation, or any other sovereign power on this planet that determines whether you're saved or not. God said it. You need to know that. You need to know that and you need to believe that. You're not saved because I looked at you and said that is in agreement with the Scripture. You're saved because God said that's what is required and He's the one that's redeemed you. When you start hanging your salvation on a denomination or a doctrine group of men, oh, well, I'm free grace, so I know I'm saved. Free grace can fall into error very easily. Does your faith now fall apart as well? This was seen at Florida Bible College of Tampa. Excuse me, Florida Bible College, not of Tampa, but the old one. When the pastor, excuse me, not the pastor, the president, when the president fell into sin, hundreds of students left. Why? Because many of them have built their faith on a man. Not to say that their conversion was false, but their growth was stunted. You don't hang your hat on the fact you're going to heaven because Pastor Jesse said so. You hang your hat that you're going to heaven because God will not lay anything against the elect. He is the one that justifies. I say that strongly because people need to hear it strongly. I love that statement. Who's going who's to bring you before God and say, this is not your child? He's the one that justified you. He's the one that gave the price to redeem you. He doesn't go, Oh, I didn't know the USA was going to come against me. What is that to him? There's no power, no sovereign nation or government or anything that could change what God has already said to be true. That should give you the greatest superpower in all the world. It is confidence in him. Knowing that your conversion is genuine, not because you feel that it is, but because God is the one that has redeemed you. Amen? Look in chapter 3 and verse 26. Romans chapter 3, verse 26. This is where we're going to move a little bit quickly because we've got a lot of verses to cover in these last few moments here. Romans 3, 26. To declare, I say, at this time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. To the lordship salvation crowd, that does not jive with their theology. Their theology says, if you're by God, which he did the moment that you believe, that's the only qualifier. Go back to Romans 8 and hold your spot and go to Galatians 3 and verse 8. I just got there and then I dropped all the pages. <laughs> Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8 says this, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify. Who is the one justifying? God. 
would justify the heathen through what? Faith. That is so good. Preach before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. Raise your hand if if you were a heathen before you came to Christ. I didn't say how much of a heathen you were. You are one. Little chicken, big chicken. Still a chicken, amen? It's interesting that people hang their hat on that. They're like, well, I was a little chicken. You know, I was a little, little sinner. Well, I'm not a big sinner like you. I watched John Piper go through that. Not, no, not John Piper. It's Ray Comfort. He was asked by, I think the guy's name is Jesse Lee Peterson or something like that. The guy, that guy's really far out there. But anyway, he asked Ray Comfort, do you sin? This is Ray Comfort's answer. Well, not intentionally. Because Ray Comfort's theology is, I'm better than most people. That's my justification. That's not it, folks. You need it all forgiven, amen? (laughs) Not just a little bit. Because a little bit left, you're out. You're done. Mm -mm, mm -mm -mm. Let the scripture speak, amen? Let God be true and every man a liar. I like that. Point number six. Go back to... Romans 8. Point number six, because Jesus intercedes for us. You can be secure in your salvation because Jesus intercedes for us. Look at verse 34. 33 says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? Notice, you're charged, and now they're trying to condemn you. This is in our court of law today. People can be charged, and they're innocent. They're still charged. But now, who's going to actually condemn them? The judge. And the, or excuse me, the jury. I said the judge because sadly that is how it works today. If you get a bad judge, you're, it doesn't really matter what the jury says. He is, uh, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God. These are all factual statements of which we build on, but the action here is who also maketh intercession for us. You already know 1 John uh, 2, 1 through 2, that he's the propitiation for our sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That is what Jesus does for us. He intercedes on our behalf. His blood speaks continually to the fact that those who have believed are found in him. That has nothing to do with you or me or the circumstances of the world. But look in Hebrews 7.25. I did a verse-by-verse through Hebrews, and I'm really thinking, not next year, but maybe the year after. Boy, that statement, man makes plans, amen? (laughs) Uh, But I really want to go through it again, because it's just so good. And I'm hearing a lot of weird stuff about Hebrews out there, weird weird stuff that is really tricky, and it's just, it doesn't speak to the truth. But anyway, Hebrews 7.25 says this, Wherefore he, Jesus, is able also to save them to the uttermost. This is to the farthest reach, which would be what? To the completion of salvation. That come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth, to what? Make intercession for them. Who are them? The ones that have come to God by faith. Excuse me, by him is what that verse says. Look in chapter 9 and verse 24. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 24. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. He did not rise from the dead 
and then walk into the temple to make a one-time sacrifice for that year for sin. He went to heaven itself and offered his blood and it was accepted. Praise God. Look at what that says. Which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God. What are those last two words? For us. He stands there and my name is known by him. And that blood is applied. This is why, folks, in any kind of circumstance I could find myself in, it is all good. It's all good. I'm known by God. I, it was, I was going through my notes, and, and I was looking at the computer screen. All of a sudden, I was like, my cheeks hurt. Why do I, why do my cheeks? I was smiling. This so motivates me. I am just so confident beyond anything that any internet dude or whatever could say. I'm known by God. And you know the, the greatest thing about that? I think of my family, which is a party of three now. Remy's got enough hair to have that little... Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Cindy Lou Who, right? Remy Lou Who. There's, you know, Da-da. It's so cute. You know what the greatest thing I could... I, I, I understand my role here as the pastor. I understand my role in counseling, all those things. But one of the greatest things I cannot wait to do, and I pray I have the opportunity, I cannot wait to introduce my daughter to this confidence. I can't wait for that. I really think that could be one of the greatest things I could do for my daughter is bring her to the confidence that even though dad might not be here one day and mom might not be here one day and the world comes against you, you can be known by God. If all of our children knew that, I guarantee you the suicide rate would go down. Families would be restored. And who gets the praise, honor, and glory in that? God, through the offering of his son. You have really no reason to fear this world. Or circumstances. I was listening to a radio program coming in. They're like, oh, we're going to use the T word. I hate the T word. I'm going, what is that? And they go, taxes. That really gets your 401k, your IRA, and non-essentials and blah, blah. I'm going, I don't have a retirement, but I'm so glad that I'm not hanging on that. Can you imagine you get to the, your deathbed and your little, I don't know what they're called, your money market manager comes up and pets your head. He's like, oh, you did it. You've only got one penny left. You did it. What happens next? I don't know. I'm going to my next client. See him. You had enough money when you died. What is that, folks? You're still going to die. People are hanging their head on, I got to get non-taxable income. That's going to make me happy. I got Jesus Christ. <laughs> and you can't tax that, amen? Because you know the government would try. You know the government would try. Last one here. Go to Romans chapter 8 and verse 37. We believed on the Son. We're sealed with the Spirit. We're predestined. Jesus has been offered for us. We've been justified. Jesus intercedes for us as our great high priest. And the seventh one, because we are loved by Him. Greatest word, love. Look at verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Not going to change that Christians are going to be persecuted. It's happening all day, every day. Is that going to separate us? Nay. 
verse 37. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, nor anything, not even the believer itself, shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has loved you before you could even understand what that is. And he did it by giving his son. When I do premarital counseling, that's the first thing I talk about. Because that's the kind of love you need to demonstrate. Oh, well, I love you so much, I'm going to cook for you. Or I'm going to communicate you into your love language. Folks, that's all fine and good for surface level stuff. You want a marriage that lasts, it's a marriage that demonstrates the love that was already demonstrated. And it's in two words, unconditional commitment. I vow to love my wife in unconditional commitment. As God has loved me, so I will love her. We may grow apart. That's only because one of us decommitted from another. Isn't it good to know that God never decommits? He never changes his mind? I want you to see that in another place of Scripture here, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in verses 16 through 17. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing right now, I'm hearing the choir again singing, I am blessed beyond measure. Oh, just, yes, yes. Now the Lord, this is verse 16 through 17, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now the Lord of peace himself give you peace always, by all means. The Lord be with you all, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all, amen. That grace, that peace, that love is right there guaranteed for us. Look in chapter 2, verse 16 through 17. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath what? what? What does it say? He loved you. And hath given us everlasting, oh, comfort that's everlasting? Sign me up. How many of you have had to spend a, a night in a hotel bed while you're traveling? Everlasting consolation is not in the definition of that mattress. It's, it's temporary suffering. Isn't it good we're not hoping that we check into the right hotel room of God's love? Oh, I got the suite. Oh, I didn't believe enough, so I got the pits. No, this is for anybody. And good hope through what? How was that love demonstrated? Through love, but also through grace. Comfort your hearts. You stay peaceful up here. And establish you in every good work. Not only does it keep us sane to the truth, but it is the gas that keeps us going in service. That is exactly what we need to hear in today's culture. Well, there's so much information, so many podcasts, so many sermons, so many conferences that say contrary to what God's Word says. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. As we do have communion today, we're going to get there in just a moment. Now tonight, we're going to go over 
practice and performance, which is really a verse by verse through 2 John. It's only about 14 verses, so I think you'll be blessed by it. But everything that we've talked about here today is only applied to those who have believed. But the reason why I didn't go with the gospel in the beginning is because I want you to see how simple it is for all those things we talked about to be true of you. In a modified version of this wallet illustration, I want you to see and understand this. If this hand is you and me, this represents sin, this represents Jesus Christ. We are condemned in this state. It's not merely that we're going to see if you are condemned, if you get a chance to turn it around. Those, it says in John chapter 3 and verse 17, those who are condemned, those who believe not are condemned already. You're in a walking state of condemnation. Doesn't matter to what degree sinner you are, good or bad, you are found guilty because of this. And there is no good work that can pay for this because the wages of sin is not good works, it's death. There's no religious practice or work that you could do to pay for this. God loved you in this condition. He didn't say, get less of this for me to love you. He loved you as a sinner. And he did it in this way. It's not some mysterious, ethereal feeling of love. It's hard historical fact and evidence. Jesus is the love of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, Jesus, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The life of which is called everlasting is given the moment of belief in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And now here you are. You still have sin in your life, but judicially you are free of it. You're given a brand new nature. You're held by the Son, secured by the Father, and the Spirit gives witness that you are His. You get that. By faith in Jesus Christ. Then these seven truths that we went through, they all flood in and are applied to you. And you can literally say what the hymn writer said after he lost his children. This hymn writer. After he lost his children in a terrible accident. They were trying to come over to the Americas. And this hymn writer wrote, It is well with my soul. How could a man faced with such tragedy have such peace and security? He is known by God. His faith is in the Son. And it's implied that his children also knew ere they are ever with the Lord. That is what you put the two feet of the Christian life on, folks. You're justified. You're known by God. And if you're here today and you say, you know what, Pastor? I walked in today and I didn't know where I was going to go when I died. But you've made a case using the Scripture that I can know. And so I've put my trust in Jesus Christ. I implore you to do that. Now, I'm looking. And I'm getting to the point that I know all of you, at least by your face and your name, but I want you to understand how significant this truth is in this season. People 
are searching. And they're going to the bottle. And they're going to the gambling. They want to deaden the feeling, but it's there the next morning. We need to be people that have the truth. We have the solution. It's not trapped up in in, in therapy. It's not behind a paywall. It's freely given. Amen? Having said that, communion is remembering the cost. Not remembering the fact that we are redeemed. We are redeemed. But remembering how serious sin is in that Jesus endured the cross for that sin. I often say, I'm not trying to get you all emotionally wound up. I'm not. But as you ponder the sin that you've let rampant in your life, and you recognize the magnitude of what Jesus endured, you have no other response but to be emotional about it. This part of the service has no magical power. It's not going to make you ten times better than the person that's not here today. It will bring you into a proper perspective of what your redemption costs the Savior. It's only for believers. This is not the time where people stand up and take a break and other things get put in order. This is for every one of us, myself included. We reflect on the cost that Jesus paid. We confess the sin that we have unconfessed, not to be saved, but to get that out of the way. And then we thank God for the Son. Is He worthy of praise? I ask you again, is He worthy of praise? He is. Would you bow your head and close your eyes, please? Nobody looking around. I want to give a quick invitation. If you're here and you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you say, Pastor, I know I'm going to heaven now. I walked in today unsure, but now I know. Would you pray for me? I'm saved. I certainly will pray for you. Would you just raise your hand and let me know that you trusted in Christ this morning? God bless you. I see you. Amen. Amen. Father, I pray for the one that is trusted in you, that they would have assurance and peace from the word. Thank you for the spirit within them bearing witness. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Heads are bowed and eyes are still closed. Would you take a moment and talk to the Lord? Get right with him. I know we're a little over time, but this is important. Spend some time with the Lord. Confess your sin, knowing that you are forgiven, and then thank the Lord. I'll be with you in a few minutes.
Thank you. Let's turn the lights back on. If you'll join me, please, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll go ahead and take the first part of our communion elements. You've got the dual packet there. Just pull that light piece back to reveal the little wafer. This wafer represents the Lord's body. Now, we know there were no bones of him broken, as that was a part of prophecy, but we do know that he was beaten and battered beyond recognition. And that was to pay for our sin, folks. The hymn writer said a long time ago he could have called 10,000 angels. Certainly he could have, but he did not. He was silent. And a few things that he did say on the cross, the most significant was that it was finished. The payment for sin had been accomplished. And so we remember that beating, that severe punishment he endured was to pay fully for our sin. And show, so we should be sensitive to it as we go forward in our Christian life. Amen? Let's go to God the Father and thank Him for the Son. Father, we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, who endured a very graphic and violent scene on Calvary. We know this cost was for our sin, and we thank You for that price which was paid. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. can go ahead and start preparing the next part. Please be careful. It might be a little tough there. Pull that tab away from you or someone else. This represents the Lord's blood, and we say it every week. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. We add for sin to complete the statement there. But that statement in Hebrews chapter 9 is true. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. We are not saved by mere good works. We're saved by this blood of Jesus Christ. Now, this represents it. But in the form of what we're doing today, we remember the shedding of this blood in reference to what it paid, which was our sin. And we thank God for it, although we know the Son endured a graphic and tragic scene there. It was not for nothing. Amen? Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ and the precious blood that was shed at Calvary. Let us not waste it or trample underfoot. Let us remember and let us not abuse it with sin. In Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is a New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread... And drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes.